The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Steffen, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, Mr. Antenna, now your host, Jim Tofty. Long, long time ago. A long, long time ago, 50 years ago, actually, Don McLean was a little-known singer-songwriter with a lot on his mind. He was 25 years old at the time, living in New York, writing songs for the follow-up for his debut album, Tapestry. That's right, his debut album was titled Tapestry, but it was out before Carol King's Tapestry. Don joins me now to talk about his epic song and another favorite, Vincent, and much, much more. Hello. Hello, is this Don? Yes, this is Don. Don, Jim Tofty here in Las Vegas for our interview. How are you? Yes, I'm fine, thank you. Welcome and congratulations, by the way, on getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's pretty incredible. Thank you very much. Um, Everybody was uh, very happy about it. Yeah, I know what it is for an actor to get a star on the Walk of Fame, but how about you as a singer-songwriter? What did it mean to you? Well, it's a a very uh, wonderful public, um, you know, affirmation of belonging to a certain group of people in show business. And uh, so it's a, a, a special thing and a beautiful thing. And I'm very delighted. Who was there to see you get the honor? Oh, my girlfriend, Paris Dunn, and uh, Weird Al Yankovic, and a bunch of people in our office, and uh, right. a whole bunch of other people there, too. My former uh, record producer, Ed Freeman, was there. You've got a great relationship with Weird Al, if people didn't know, and when he wanted to do a parody of uh, your song, was there any hesitation on your part? Uh, Did he have to tell you, kind of sell you on it? No. You know, I I know whatever he does will be very funny and very successful, and and I, I loved what he did. It was very good. By the way, the placement of where the star is, it was kind of, uh, kind of fun, wasn't it? It really was, and it's nice because um, people can find the little pie place and they'll know where my star is. And it, what is it called? The pie hole? Is that the name of the place? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, can you take us a few years back to when you were writing American Pie, which is now, it's hard to believe, but it's the 50th anniversary. And Yes, it is. When you were writing this song and what you were thinking at the time, where were you, by the way, when you were starting to write it? Well, I was in three different locations when I wrote the song. First was I was in a, a little gatehouse in Cold Spring on the Hudson, which is right across from West Point. And then I was walking along in Cold Spring when I came up with the chorus. And then I was in a, a house in uh, Chestnut Hill, Philadelphia, when I wrote the rest of it. It doesn't surprise me that you were, that it w- was actually done in a few different places because of the, the epic nature of the song and how long it ended up being. And when you bring something like this to the studio, who were you recording with? Who was the band and where did you record it? I recorded this song at the record plant in New York City. Sure. And it was the it was the hot studio at the time, but it was an excellent studio. And uh, an engineer named Tom Fly engineered the record, and Ed Freeman produced the record. And I was making the album American Pie for first uh, Media Arts Records, 
And then they were bought by United Artists, so the album ended up falling into their hands. The inspiration for this, of course, Buddy Holly is certainly front and center here. Was this an artist that you had on your mind as you were growing up as a kid, somebody that you really loved? Well, that's all very true. Always on my mind, and I very, and I very much loved him more than almost any other. But I was from a place called Larchmont Woods in New Rochelle, New York. Yeah. And I wasn't from Texas, and I wasn't from any place that was particularly musical. Um, so I was in my own world. Many people later, because I, because American Pie really made Buddy Holly famous, a lot of people came out of the woodwork telling me all this, that, and the other thing about Buddy Holly. But it didn't really matter to me because I had my own relationship with him in my head. And uh, and it found its way into that song, the inspiration really for a much bigger song about uh, about America. And it's not a short song, but that's not something you were really concerned with as, as you uh, wrote it and then recorded it? It's a long song, not a short song. Yeah. <laughs> but it became a short song because the record company cut it down to about three three minutes. And that's the one that went to number one. And then later on, the long song went to number one. The album sold millions, the single sold millions. And my first and third albums and many of the other albums I made in the 1970s sold many hundreds of thousands. So because of the groundwork I laid with Tapestry, with uh, the underground radio stations, and then you know, coming above ground and having these hit record with American Pie and the album was a big hit also. Everything I did after that was very successful throughout the 70s. Obviously, it was a hit, You, but you as an artist, you didn't at the time before it was released as a three-minute single. Did you have any problem with that, with what they did with it in cutting it down? You know, the artist with all the integrity and everything. I didn't care what they did. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I handed the, the album was what I cared about. I was out to make albums. The albums are all I ever cared about. If you, if, when I'm no longer around, the only thing you have to listen to are my albums. I'm not a hit song maker. I'm not a hit songwriter, and I'm not a hit maker. I have made hits because they just happened. But I wasn't in there thinking, you know, how can I juice this up or how can I make this more uh, sexy or more, you know, hot for radio. I never ever yeah. thought about those things. Do you remember the first place you performed the song, and did you did you perform it before it was released? Yes, I'm sure I did. I can't remember the first place. I think I played it around. The one place that I kind of remember is I was opening uh, the show for Laura Nero at uh, St. Joseph's College in uh, Philadelphia, and I believe I sang it there. That was the first time I sang it in front of a, you know, like a professional commercial audience. I might have sung it, you know, in a nightclub or at a festival somewhere on the Hudson or something like that, but... um, I was very free form. I was always singing new things and changing lyrics. And um, I think I had a little girl hold the lyrics up, you know, because I couldn't, you know, read them and sing the song. I hadn't remember. I hadn't memorized it yet. Uh, right. <laughs> that's great. Well, and Laura Nero. Wow, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really liked her. I like Laura Nero a lot, and uh, I like Tim Harden a lot too. Yeah. Two very, very sensitive, amazing artists who never got. Uh, uh, known or have pretty much been forgotten. 
And it's, they were so good and so important. You know, it just didn't happen for them, especially Tim Harden. He is, uh, I don't say especially because they were both the same, but it, Tim Harden is copied by a lot of people. I was listening to uh, yes. Stephen Stills uh, sing somewhere. I said, ah, what the heck? He's copying the sound of... Tim Harden like crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I love Tim Harden, and you, you, you're you right about that. Uh, other artists do refer to him all the time, don't they? Yeah, and he had a, you know, he was, a, he, he was if the truth be told, and, and it has been told, that Tim had a serious heroin problem. Yeah. And it was, it was almost degenerate, you know. I mean, he really, really couldn't function without the stuff and he would got to get on methadone and you know he just it just ravaged his body but he still had his talent he was a little guy and he would wear like platform shoes and everything and but my god you know ed freeman my producer made an album called bird on a wire with him and that's one of the things that convinced me that i wanted to work with with ed because everybody, nobody suggested Ed Freeman to me. I told the record company who I wanted to work with, and I had control over that. I could do whatever I wanted. That's so great. I chose him, and um, you know, he, he told me just how hard it was um, to work with uh, with because by the time he was making that record, uh, Tim Harden had you know mental problems actually from from doing so much so many drugs for so long it was just making him really kind of insane very brian wilson like isn't it that situation yeah it's not uncommon um right. you know in in and it also probably is the reason why a, a lot of good songs were written but i'm not i'm sure it's not worth it you know in the cost in terms of human suffering or whatever um but yes very brian wilson and i you know, I myself, you know, dabbled in drugs and stuff, but I realized I did not want to go down that road because I didn't like being out of control. And, you know, a lot of these guys would sell songs for 50 bucks, you know, just to be able to to get a hit of dope. And uh, I don't know, the whole thing was ugly to me. I wasn't brought up that way. There was no room in my life and in the way I was brought up for that kind of behavior. So I just fooled it. Yeah. And, you know, at the time American Pie came out, it's some of the people we lost right around that time, uh, Janis Joplin and Morrison and Hendrix, right, right in that era, weren't they? Yeah. And they were all, they were dumb about drugs and they were, and the problem with, with rock and roll and with that generation was unlike former generations like i don't think sinatra ever thought that he was sent to the world to give them some sort of a message but a lot of the rock and roll guys you know they took a lot of lsd and whatever and they thought all of a sudden the hand of god was on them you know you know the beatles were saying you know nowhere man and trying to tell everybody how to live and i I was standing back and watching this and thinking it was sort of stupid. You know, I don't need you to tell me how to live. I like your music, but yeah, I really know how I want to live. I don't need your help, you know. Hard drugs like that, if they were lucky to, to pass through it, which, you know, Ray Charles did and some of the others did. Yeah. But you weren't going to come out a winner if you kept that up, you know, and they had to figure that out and they did figure it out. Most of them and Billy holiday didn't figure it out. And, you know, right. Some, some of these others, but, um, 
again, I'm, I'm going back to Sinatra. He didn't do drugs. He hated drugs. So there were a lot of people that, um, you know, did struggled and made it that didn't, you know, and had setbacks and didn't suddenly start shooting up the heroines. Uh, in 2017, your song, American Pie, was selected for uh, preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress. Congratulations to you, because that had to Thank be you. one of the biggest honors for you. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I'm accumulating quite a few little honors here. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's amazing. Right. Uh, you know, it's not just one or two. It's like eight or nine now. It's pretty amazing. And uh, But I don't take anything for granted. I'm always amazed, and I'm still the guy that I always was, which was somebody who wanted to be, I wanted to be a really good songwriter, a really good singer, and a really good stage performer. And I worked very hard at those things. And, um, you know, I never really thought in terms of, I mean, you know, there's a 50-foot mural of me in Nourishelle, New York, where I was born. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about uh, something amazing. I was, as I was there, or maybe it's even 60 feet, I, I thought, what would my mother and father, they were both gone, what would they think, you know, about that? You know, that was just amazing. Yeah, let alone the Library of Congress, right? Yes, well, of course. I mean, that and um, a lot of other things, but yeah. yeah. You've toured and met uh, so many great artists over the years, and, and I know one that was, was very near and dear to you, and that is the Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers were everybody that I knew, and again, I was in a, a white middle-class environment, so I didn't know anybody but those kind of kids when I was growing up, but everybody had an Everly Brothers record. Not everybody had an Elvis record, but everybody had an Everly Brothers record. They were, you know, more popular, really, where I came from than Elvis was. So, you know, I later met um, them in 1969 and talked to uh, Phil Everly about Buddy Holly and uh, that's when he told me that Buddy had taken the plane flight for, because he had to do dirty laundry, oh, that... and that that started my mind going because I was I was bent on creating a large song about America, which was not anything like anything anybody had ever done before. It was going to be about the real America, you know, the the America which was rock and roll, the America, which was media, the America, which was movies, the America, which was crazy, the America, which was violent, the America, which was uh, sentimental, you know, so many aspects of it that weren't in songs like This Land is Your Land. Right. And, and, you know, one that comes to mind for me is your song, Vincent, which is, to me, is one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. I put it right up there with the Beatles, Blackbird, and, and Brian's, Brian Wilson's Surf's Up. It's just that good. Well, thank you. Um, again, we were, we were all working in an environment back in those days where everybody was competing with one another because, you know, you never knew who was going to come out with the next amazing song and and make you want to work harder uh to do something that was terrific you know that you could do so there was a lot of competition uh and that's part of the reason why i did as well as i did because i was spurred to try harder and work harder and and create some of these songs um 
But the other thing is that the audience that listened to this music was receptive to these ideas, uh, poetic lyrics, uh, long songs with character developments and ideas. And those people in that audience produced the artists that made the music for them. And that's why when you look at today, you know, they ask me, well, why, why aren't we hearing what's going on? Because the audience that listening to the garbage that's out there now is producing the artists that are creating the garbage. So it's all part of a connection. You can't take the old audience from 1970 and juxtapose it with the trash that's in the uh, that's out there now and say why don't these people produce better music these people are producing what they're capable of producing because that's what they are yeah that's what they love that's what they think is cool that's what they think turns them on so it's all part of a sociological thing i'm sure that you were influenced too by your many days of of performing on on hundreds and hundreds of college campuses you you yes. certainly heard a lot of uh, great and varied speakers throughout the day yeah, too yeah i did i also heard a lot of bomb scares yeah there's a lot of you know newfound radical well it's not really newfound because really the communists and the fascists have been fighting it out since world war 1 it's always the same thing you know berlin was uh, you know on fire before world war 2 and the communists and the fascists fought it out in World War One, and it's always been a communism, democracy slash sometimes fascism fight. And right now, that's what we're dealing with again. You know, you have the ultra right wing and the Republican Party and the ultra left wing, which are basically communists and fascists. But to me, they're all fascists because they want to control everything you think and everything you do. So to me, they're both fascists. And uh, but it's the same old story. And it's really, really hard to get a, you know, a good democratic, open-minded debate going because everyone's closed their minds. You can't go on a college campus now, and I mean Dartmouth, Yale, wherever, and have an opposing view to anything that is accepted by the ultra-left as being the rule. That guy will allow you to talk even. Yeah. And that that's not college. Yeah, and getting dangerous. Uh how was it that, uh, to go back to American Pie, how was it decided that, I guess it was your thumb, was painted to look like the American flag? How did that album cover concept come about? Because that's well, as famous it, as the song itself, I would think. It, it, it really is. And a guy named George Whiteman in Los Angeles, and again, this is because Media Arts Records was the record company I was with, and they were run by Alan Livingston, who really oh, was yeah. the man, man behind Capitol Records. Right. Signed the Beach Boys, the Beatles, Sinatra, the Kingston Trio, everybody that was number one in their particular area, he had on Capitol. He made it into a behemoth, you know, a, a huge record label, and he ran Media Arts. That was his baby, and he'd only managed to get two albums, one from me, and the second one was going to be American Pie, and he would have scored, and he would have probably been able to stay in business, but he had sold the company to um, United Artists, but he was the guy who sent me off to George Whiteman, and I went into the his office there, and he had a he was a, um, a fashion photographer. A lot of hot chicks were coming in there all the time, and uh -huh. Georgie boy, you know, the whole thing. Uh -huh. And I'm I'm a hick. I'm watching this. I'm laughing, you know, because I'm <laughs> I'm thinking of love that Bob, you know, on TV, you know, <laughs> right. Bob Cummings. That's what he was like, you know, all the girls coming in. 
So he looked at me, he said, hi, Don. I said, how are you? He's a handsome guy, you know, a lot of hair and good-looking man. He said, I'm going to paint your thumb. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so that's what he did. And then I put it on the top of the guitar and looked down, sighted down, and he took many photos. I don't know where they ended up, but he took a lot. So there's, there's like, outtake photos, in other words. There's a whole bunch I, of different I, angles. I, no, we've never found them. We don't no? know what happens. No. Nope. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. As far as your voice is concerned, it's better than ever. I've talked to different singers, you know, over the last several years who have been around for a while who still have that voice, like uh, the lead singer Colin Blenstone of the Zombies comes to mind. He still takes... Oh, I, I love him. He's great. Yeah, and he told me that... I really love him. He told... I do as well, and he said that he takes singing lessons and he has, has taken them from... Broadway singing coaches so that he knows how to main, maintain it and stuff. But you have that same quality in your voice. I imagine you take very good care of it. Yeah, well, um, I don't trash my voice. You know, I first of all, I, I don't smoke, but I like to drink. Yeah. And, you know, I like to have booze once in a while, I'll have a good time and this and that. But I'm aware all the time about what's going on with uh my vocal cords and with you know i'll i'll start to really sing around the house and just check it out and say yeah it's all there you know what i mean um but i was gifted i was and i i didn't abuse that gift i um i did a lot of deep breathing and a lot of vocal exercises and i learned a lot of vocal exercises from an opera teacher when i was about 12 years old wow and my sister heard about a lady in Nourishell that taught opera, and she got me some lessons, and I went there, and it was quite an experience. She was a, a, a little lady with heavy set lady with um, dark dyed black hair, and she lived in a two room little tiny apartment with her cat, and <laughs> she would she would go out and buy a. Um, fish for the cat, you know, treat, treated the cat like it was the only person in the world that mattered. And she would go to the House <laughs> of Music in Nourishelle and get uh, sheet music, you know. And I would stand by her little piano and she would start working with me. And I'd sing chromatic exercises and then a little more difficult ones. And then I would have to go home and practice those and learn to hit the notes. When you're flat, when you're sharp, don't be flat or sharp. Hit the notes. And when I'm in my, at my best, I hit the notes on the head because of her. You know, she taught me uh, to do that. And uh, you have to learn to hear hear yourself. That stuck with you, obviously, all, yes. all these mm -hmm. years. It's, it's and amazing. also breathing. You know, I was on a swimming team, so I was competing. And my vocal ability improved because my lung capacity improved. And I would do breathing exercises to keep that lung capacity uh, good so i'm very aware of how my lungs are and my throat and all that you know i'm i know about it you know i'm i'm, I'm aware of it by the way before i let you go where did you uh, people from new rochelle did you think it was really cool that the dick van dyke show was was in new rochelle that that's where they lived rob and laura well that's a great uh, question and it opens <laughs> up something because new rochelle I would ask you to do something when we get off of our interview. Yeah. 
look up Neuroshell. Google Neuroshell. Okay. And, yep, and then go there, and then go and see notable people from Neuroshell. And you will see more people from Neuroshell than you could ever imagine. Really? Hundreds of people. Going back for probably 70, 80 years, the most famous people in America. So when I grew up, Neuroshell was a place that the athletes went, the TV stars went, the, the Broadway stars, the opera stars. Um, all that was done in California were movies in the 1950s. Everything else was in New York. And so everybody, many, many, many stars and intellectuals and uh, recording artists and writers and art, regular artists like, you know, Frederick Remington and people like that had studios in Neuroshell because, you know, it was convenient. And um, so when I grew up, you never knew if you went on the Saturday with a bunch of kids to the movies, you didn't know what television star was going to show up. Like it could be Clarabelle the Clown from Howdy Doody right. in Neuroshell or... It could be Walter Winchell, you know, um, who had a little, uh, not Walter Winchell, um, the guy who had the, uh, the TV show with uh, the, the puppets, um, Paul, Paul Winchell. Winchell. Right. Yeah, he would show up. I met him once in the woods. Um, when I was walking around long in the woods, we had woods where we lived, and there he was with his daughter. And uh, I was going to say, he wasn't there with a puppet, was he? Because that would have been weird. No, he was, th <laughs> he was there with his daughter, and... They were taking a walk, and Larchmont Woods had 60 acres of woods that were all around, and people would use this as a way of, you know, feeling good. And uh, so we lived in the woods growing up, and I met him in the woods, and and he was with his daughter, and he said we were near a pond, you know, and he said, you know, Don, I I think there's a man across that pond, and he was saying, hi, Don, hi, Don. <laughs> And through his voice, I swear to God, it right. sounded like it was coming across the right. That was oh, a funny day. That is amazing. Well, Don McLean is performing at uh, Green Valley Ranch Resort Friday, September 17th. And also the 50th anniversary American Pie bookazine is available yes. everywhere. And always check out all the information at donmcclain.com. It's so nice to catch up with you, Don. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. Good questions, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. You stay well now. Okie doke. Bye-bye. So Don talked about producer Ed Freeman, who put together just a great rhythm section in the studio for American Pie, and even though Don suggested just using an acoustic guitar on the track, to this day, Don says, I only wish I had been a little looser in the studio because I was a kid and a bit nervous. By the way, Freeman also produced Tim Harden, Carly Simon, Bonnie Bramlett, Greg Allman, and many, many more. And yes, I did look up notable people from New Rochelle, and he was right. The list includes Jay Leno, Matt Dillon, Bob Denver, Rob Morrow, Richard Roundtree, Peter Scolari, and a whole bunch more. Well, that does it for this episode of the Fake Show podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. That's not how it used to be.